you know, have the proper spotter, make sure that you do. And I'm like, okay, okay, got it. And so he's like, all right, why don't we start? And he puts me down there and course, what does every 14, 15, 16-year-old boy want to do first? We want to bench press, because that is the true test of our athletic prowess is to push a bar off our chest like this. So this 45-pound bar had two 15s on it, and, and we, we start, and we get warmed up, and I, I got pretty good at this. In fact, he, he talked about um, how if you really want to be good, you should have the proper equipment. So I, of course, got a weight belt so that I wouldn't arch my back too much to, to hurt my back. And then I got some hand weights or hand gloves that, you know, would protect my dainty palms. But also with the wrist wrap to make sure that my wrists would be okay. So got all that on and I got up to, well, I got a lot more than that. However, the one day that I decided to really max it out I forgot one very, well, two very important details. Weights are all on. They are clamped on. I'm under that. And I have, I have put on, I mean, it's nearly 200 pounds, I'll be honest. It, 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 was, it was pretty good for me. And then I was in the tight place. Because as I lifted the weight down, I realized I could not get the weight back up. And I forgot the spotter because I thought I could do it on my own. And now I'm saying, a little, little, little help, please. <laughs> and this massive man with hands the size of, oh, just huge, comes over, and I'm pretty sure just with one hand, lifts this thing off. <laughs> I mean, I, I helped. Lifts this off, racks it, and says, you know, you should really have a spotter. <laughs> Thanks. And he goes, and by the way, when you don't breathe and you hold your breath, you're either going to give yourself a hernia or you're going to pop a blood vessel in your face. <laughs> oh, that would probably not go well with the look I was going for. And uh, so he's like, just so breathe. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, breathe out as you, as you flex because it relaxes your body. It increases the oxygen that go to your muscles so you can lift more. I'm like, oh, I should take notes on that. So I decided after my very short season of weightlifting that I would not do that anymore and put myself in those tight places. So I decided to take up golf. Now, I don't know how many of you like golf. Um, how many of you do not know how to play golf, do not care to play golf, but would be interested in being in a golf lesson? I promise I won't humiliate you. Anyone? Oh, Sean, that's great. Come on over. So I decided... You don't, need to, you don't need to be a good weightlifter to play golf. I mean, look at Tiger Woods. He's not that much bigger than me. Uh, so, Sean, why don't you come over here? So I decided my dad, who learned how to play golf, he... Uh, yeah, so we're going to... Uh, you know, nobody likes to start with a driver, so... My dad taught me how to play golf, so I'm gonna, you're going to be me. Okay. Sorry. And I'm going to be my dad, okay. all right? Hey, Sean. Actually, you're Rob. Okay, we're just seeing if you're in character, okay? Now, now Sean, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to put your, right, your left foot out here and then your right foot a little bit back. So you're a little bit, no, sorry, over here. There you go. Uh, you want to bend your knees a little bit, not stick your butt out too far, and, uh, but a little bit. And you want to make a straight line. You golfers, you check me out. You want to make a straight line from here down to here with the club. Excellent. Now, you want to keep that... That grip relaxed, but 
not too relaxed because I don't want you to hit my father-in-law. And then you want to overlap your hands, so put that one on, um, and you want to move that hand down a little bit. Okay, so relax grip, but tight enough to hang on. Now, keep those wrists really loose, okay? But you got to lock your elbows. Okay, so the elbows need to be tight, but the wrists need to be loose. Shoulders, you got to relax the shoulders. Okay, broad to breathe. Head down. All right, a little bit further out, yeah. So, so loose wrists, tight elbows, relax shoulders, put your head down, relax the face, you know, relax the head. Keep your eye on the ball. You want to make sure the eye's on the ball. And the hands need to be, if the ball's right, no, see, if the ball's going to be here, I'm not going to get a ball. The hands need to be in front of the ball. There you go. And, okay, got that? So bend, yep, there you go. So wrists, relaxed, loose grip, but tight enough to hang on. You got to lock the elbows. You, you got to, now you remembering all this? Are you sure? Most of it. Okay, so, well, now we've got to make sure you're all lined up. Okay, so you've got that. You've got the hands in front of the ball. You've got the eyes down. You've got to keep your eye on the ball. You want to make sure. And when you come back, you want to come back nice and slow. So come back. Yeah, okay, you're safe. Oh, you, you bent your wrist. So, well, that's okay. I told you relaxed wrist. So, but not too relaxed. So tight enough to keep them straight. But remember, the elbows are locked. So why don't you come back again? You want to go parallel? Oh, see, now you're nervous, aren't you? Yeah. All right. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, you. That's okay. Good job. Good job. And that's how I felt, too. I don't know how many of you enjoy golf, but it's pretty hard to enjoy golf when you're just worried about not messing up. Isn't that right? And so I just decided to stop playing golf because my dad would just sit and correct. I love my dad, but he would just sit and correct me and correct me and correct me. I'm like, there's 517 things to remember. Now, in weightlifting, we can fall into a tight place. In golf, we can just put ourselves into a tight place. And I think in life, when we're just worried about not messing up, it becomes tense. And it becomes not any fun. And life doesn't have to be fun. But there are times in our life where we fall into tight places. There are times in our life where we put ourselves in a tight place because we worry and worry and worry about something, about not messing up. And so today, what I want to ask us is what do we do when we find ourselves in a tight place? Like one of the phrases, when you find yourself between a rock and a hard place, what do you do? Now just think about your life. Think about maybe the last week. Have you been in a tight place? Have you been in a place where the odds do not look like they're in your favor? Where you have no idea what way to go and what God might say to that? That's what we're going to do today. Now last week we looked at the fact that in crisis our character comes out. So we looked at this guy named Saul who became king, but as king... He did not have a heart that was right with God. The whole, this whole book that we've been looking at, 1 Samuel, is all about trying to figure out who the ideal king, who would be this person that would rule under God, that would have their heart right with him, that would be the ideal person to bring the people and lead the people to a right place with God, to where it is so obvious that the people are right with God that all the other nations all the other nations around would watch them, would emulate them, would want to be like them. That's the, the, the prayer and the promise that God had for God's people. He said it way back with Abraham. 
Abram, I will bless you. And, and through that blessing, you will bless others. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. This is the promise, this is the ideal, and this is the place that people, God's people keep falling short. So Saul wasn't the right king uh, for several reasons. Number one, he prayed when he should have, and prayed and waited when he should have acted. And then when he was supposed to act, he waited. And then when, when push came to shove, what really came out was he wanted the people to honor him rather than him leading the people to honor God. And so his heart just wasn't right with God. He kind of lived from crisis to crisis. He saw everything as a crisis. And we looked at, when you see things as a crisis, they lead to anxiety. And when they lead to anxiety, they also lead to insecurity. And when they lead to insecurity, they lead to doubt. Doubt that God is really big enough to come through. And so when we think that God is not big enough to come through, then we lack faith or trust that God will actually come through. So what do we do? We take it in our own hands and we either rebel or we disobey. And that's exactly what Saul did. And that led him to this place where he lost his position. Now, everybody doesn't know that yet. But the person who's reading the story knows that. And if you pay attention to the story, the the writer is giving clues to that. When we feel like we've lost something, it's very easy to worry. When we feel like we're in a tight place, it's also very easy to worry. And, and so I started to um, think about this thing, this worry, idea of worry, to feel uneasy or concerned about something or to be troubled. And I think there's a few of us that struggle with worry in the room. You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. So I did some reading about worry. So here's what Dr. Martin Rossman says about worry. Now, Dr. Rossman is a pioneer in mind, body, medicine, and healing. Doesn't that sound like a cool title? I'm an MD in mind, body, medicine, and healing. He says, worry is an adaptive survival feature. We use our imaginations to anticipate potential dangers and then develop ways to avoid them. Doesn't that sound awesome? So the next time someone says, you worry too much, you can just say, you know, actually, worry is an adaptive survival function. I use my imagination to imagine all the potential dangers and then avoid them. Mm -hmm. And you can do that if you want to. He says... Worry is a function of the human imagination. And the human imagination, according to this doctor, is the most powerful force on earth outside of God or nature. Think about that. I mean, imagination might be the thing that that most differentiates us from every other species on the planet. Now, there is a problem with worry. Because sometimes you see people that worry a lot and they're not running around saying, this is my adaptive survival function, are they? You're like, you need help. That's what you're thinking. Because the major problem with worry is it can easily degrade from this imaginative problem solving to just a bad habit. And the bad habit is thinking and thinking and obsessing about all the things we don't want to have happen to us. Still with me? And so what happens is, That's just what we think about. We think about all these things that we don't want to have happen, like this lady who literally, day after day, week after week, year after year, walks around her house from dawn until dusk. I mean, this neighbor is watching this lady, and she's old. Like, she doesn't have a walker, but she doesn't need a walker, because literally, she has furrowed a path 
around her house that is about knee deep from all the time she's walked around the house carrying a, a bundle of twigs, sticks. And this neighbor just walks, watches her walk around the house. Finally, I don't know why it took him so long, finally he says something. He's like, what are you doing? I've just watched you do this year after year. She's like, you don't, you don't know? No, I don't know. She's like, I'm keeping the house safe from tigers. What? I'm keeping the house safe from tigers. But we live in Indiana. There are no tigers. See? It works. <laughs> now, research shows 85% of what we worry about are things that will never happen to us. Now, if you don't want to go with a funny story or you don't want to go with a fact, how about um, Corey Tenboom, who was a survivor of Nazi concentration camps? She brings this to a spiritual level. She says, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it empties today of its strength. And even more important than that, I think, is what Jesus says. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Who by worrying can add a single hour to their life? But sometimes we think it does, doesn't it? Some ways we, worry is really going to change something. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Who by worrying can add a single hour to their life? Now, I've had a lot of conversations this week with a lot of different people, and some of their worry is legit. Uh, I have people worried about which advice to take on certain things, and they, they just they don't want to they don't want to miss the the right advice and take the wrong advice. I know other people who are worrying about um, which parent they need to please in a situation and or which child they need to please in the situation. I, I had uh, another person worrying about their job. Uh, literally, they have a corporate calendar on Outlook and it said, meeting with HR <laughs> and their name there. No one had told them, but they're like, I think I'm going to be fired. Uh, I have other people that came worrying about family issues for Thanksgiving because the holidays bring out the best in our families. They bring out the fun and dysfunctional. Um, I have other people who are worried about court cases, custody cases, justice cases. Some people who are, are just really worried about if they're with the right person, um, dating or engaged and just not quite sure. And now some of those things you could explain away and say, that's crazy talk, but if I'd be worrying about those things and you said that's crazy talk, I wouldn't feel loved, <laughs> I wouldn't feel very supported, and it wouldn't really help. But I think understanding and maybe even just believing, uh, speaking, stating the fact that, that worry doesn't add a single hour to our life, all it does is get us closer and closer to being overwhelmed. And when we're overwhelmed, I think we do one of three things. When we're overwhelmed, I think we complain because somehow we think that's going to magically change it or we believe, you know, the, the quote that misery loves company. And so that's what we see the, the God's people do in the wilderness. They go out free, freed from slavery. They should be really happy. And they're like, man, we're out in the desert and God is the only one guiding us. And we, you know, this food is the same every week. We want to go back to slavery um, now, some people, when they're overwhelmed, they just close up. They become frozen with fear. 
They don't know what to do. They're overwhelmed, so they just don't do anything. And then we have some people who just check out. They just walk away. Or they flake out, or they become so overwhelmed that they leave the situation. And none of those things bring us to a place where God can actually be God. And now maybe you've experienced that in your own life. You can recall images where you have complained, or you've closed up, or you've checked out. Maybe you've seen situations in your own life where other people have done that to you. How do you respond? That's a tight spot. And that's a tough situation. And I'm not going to say, like, just slapping a Bible verse on it is going to make it all better. But as I read our text for this week, I kept seeing over and over and over God giving us a better option. And we find it in the story that says, when you're in a tight spot, when you're literally between a rock and a hard place, God can give us opportunities if we just look and believe that he might act. So the writer of 1 Samuel wants to show us that. He wants to show us that, that this king that, that the prophet has rejected and says, you're not going to be king anymore. Actually, his son is a better king than he is. His son is a more ideal king. His son has a heart that's right with God. Now, we don't yet know if that son will be king, but he leaves that open, at least at this part in the story. And so I want to look at why is his heart right with God and what does that say to our situation when we're faced with a tight spot. So I'm in 1 Samuel 14. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along with us. Now in 1 Samuel 14, we find out that Jonathan is the son of the king. And Jonathan is old enough to be a warrior. He's old enough to have led an army out into battle. He's actually won a victory or two. His dad has won a couple victories. And so one day Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, someone who carries his armor, uh, isn't that a fun job? I think he might get to wear some too. But he says, come, let's go over to our enemies, the Philistines, to their outpost on the other side. And he doesn't tell his father. So we get from this picture because we, if we read behind uh, in the previous chapters, that he doesn't tell his father because his father is frozen with fear. His father is in this place of safety back away from the, line, the lines of battle. All his dad saw were the obstacles. And the obstacles look like this. Uh, the Philistines have, have won a few victories. Saul is the king of Israel. God has promised Israel to have this promised land. And the promised land is 45 miles wide. And it goes from sea level to the mountains, down a little, mountains, down to the Jordan River, and then mountains on the other side, and then desert. Okay? So this strip of land is really tiny. And the Philistines have occupied it for a long time, and they pretty much thumbed their noses at God's people. They didn't want to share, and God said, you're going to be out of here, and the Israelites are going to be put in. The Israelites have made some progress into the land, and the Philistines are not going to give it up. Not only that, but this particular place they're in has a deep ravine between two cliffs. And on one side of the cliff are the Philistines. On the other side of the cliff are the Israelites. And back from the cliff is a place called Michmash. Isn't that a fun little name? And a place called Gibeah, or Gibeah, or Giba, depending on how you say it. 
Back here is the safe place that Saul is. It says in the text, and I think in verse 2, that he's under a, a, a tree, a pomegranate tree or, or something. And he, he, the writer's trying to give this picture of the judges, where Saul's just kind of sitting back and administering the kingdom. However, we see his son Jonathan on the edge of the ravine, on the edge of this cliff, looking out across, might be several hundred, might be a couple miles wide, valley, gorge, and he's looking at the army on the other side. Now, it's not like they're, they're all standing up ready for battle on the other side. No, they're actually back in Michmash, just like Saul is back behind the ravine at Gibeah. So they're in these two respective towns. But as you move from these towns, you come to the ravine. Well, the Philistines have decided to put an outpost, we see in um, chapter 13. They put a military outpost right on the edge of the ravine. Now, I don't know if there's two 20, 200 soldiers that are at that outpost. I just know that the writer tells us that, we, that the Philistines can pretty much see every move that the Israelites are making from that ravine. They've got all the high places secured. And there's only one pass. There's only one little notch that's the easiest way through. And that's the Michmash Pass. So ravine, ravine, little pass. And the Philistines have it. And that's the only way Israel's going to get through. That's the only way supplies are going to come from that side too. They have all the advantages. And yet, Jonathan is willing to take a risk. He's walking the ravine. He's looking for opportunities. Definitely between a rock and a hard place though. And what does he say in verse 6? He says to his young armor bearer, Hey, come, let's go to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. You know, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And his armor bearer says, do all that you have in your mind. I'm with you, heart and soul. I don't know what kind of Shakespearean language that is, but basically the armor bearer is saying, hey, I so believe you and I so believe your faith in God and your trust that I'll do it to just understand how absolutely crazy this is, you have to understand where everything is coming from. You've got to get a picture of the situation. So I've kind of described the layout, the geography. But now, Saul has an army of 3,000 men. We find the previous chapters. He's gathered this large army, even though he's not supposed to. The ideal king doesn't gather a large army, but Saul did. There's only 600 men left. So from 3,000 to 600, you can do the net loss ratio there. And they're on a cliff. And of those 600, there's lots of them that are so scared, they're hiding in crevices, cracks, caves. They don't want to be there. Saul's sitting back. Philistines got a big army. Not only that, but the, Saul's, uh, the Philistines have a monopoly on all the blacksmiths in the land. They don't have Amazon or eBay. They can't order up a sword. The only place they can get it in the land, because desert on one side, Philistines on the other, are from the Philistines, who've pretty much said to any blacksmith, if you sell a sword to the Israelites, we are going to take a sword to you. Something like that. So we find out from the text that Jonathan has a sword, and the king has a sword. And nobody else has a sharp metal object, a spear or something. Now, they might have a plow, because they're farmers, So they might have taken a hoe that they're going to hoe someone with, I'm sure, or a shovel. I mean, that's sort of effective, but not against a sword. 
So that's another thing. Not only that, but then the only place that they can actually make it through is that pass that I just described. They are literally between a rock and a hard place. And those rocks actually have names. Uh, Verse 4. On one side of the pass, Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost, and it was a cliff. One was called Boses, which means in Hebrew, shining. It was on the south side. And the other was called Senna. One cliff stood on the north towards Michmash on the Philistine side, the other to the south towards Geba on the Israelite side. The sun might go off the one side so it's shining, or it might be that the rock is really light. The point is that that if you've ever rock climbed, when you come to a really, really hard place to rock climb that very few people have climbed, it's got a name. And usually the harder it is, the worse the name is, like Widowmaker or Devil's Tower. There's reasons for that. I imagine these two cliffs kind of in that category. All we get from the text is that Jonathan climbed with his hands and feet. It's one thing to hike up a mountain just using your feet. Gives you a little idea of the level of the terrain. It's another thing to have to use your hands and feet to crawl up. But that's what the text says. So Jonathan's idea is, hey, we got one sword. Um, I know what we should do. We should climb down the south cliff because they might see us there. And even if they don't see us there, we'll run across the field, the ravine bottom. They'll definitely see us. And then whatever they say, that'll determine what we should do. Uh, Eight, nine, and ten. See, this is what it probably looks like. And that's kind of an idea of how steep it just might be. It's probably not that close together. So Jonathan thinks, yeah, let's just climb down, run across, climb up. And then whatever the Philistines say, that'll determine what God is going to do. Let's leave it in the hands of these people who don't know God. Let's leave it in the hands of their response. But that's exactly what it says. I think it's 8, 9, and 10. And if they say to us, wait there, wherever there is, until they come to you, then we'll stay and not go up because maybe God hasn't done it. But if they say, come up to us, then we'll climb up because that will be our sign. The Lord has given them into our hands. Does this not sound crazy? Now, I don't know if you just think that's foolish or if you're like, wow, that would be an awesome movie. Like that's right out of Braveheart or Lord of the Rings, whichever one you want. I mean, I think it's risky. But see, I see Jonathan, when we think about this idea of being in a rock and a hard place and being so tense that we can't even swing a golf club or we think we're pinned under a bench press, let her... That's literally, or maybe in your life figuratively. I see a man who is truly alive. I see a man who, in the midst of being in a tight place, he, he isn't doubting or questioning whether or not God would come through. He's just saying, hey, perhaps God, perhaps, like maybe, maybe God will act on our behalf. Because Because the victory is up to the Lord, whether by many warriors or few. So this isn't a maybe like, oh, gee, I I don't know, maybe God will act or maybe he won't. This is a victory like maybe God will act because it's God's reputation on the line 
And it's not about my strength. Have you met someone in your life that has that kind of faith? I mean, they are the most unbelievably energizing people to be around if you've met them, are they not? They walk with a lightness and yet a confidence and a humility in God because they realize it's not about them, it's not about their strength. I mean, how many of you really like to follow super anxious people? I'll tell you, the, verse, uh, the, the quote that haunts me the most as I do this is the single most important factor of a healthy organization is the non-anxious presence of the leader. Oh my gosh. Talk about getting me tense. Oh God, please don't help me be anxious because no one will follow if I'm anxious. Oh. But think about it. If you've been in a company where there's a non-anxious presence of a leader, isn't that company healthy? You've been in a church where the 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 the, the pastor, the leadership team is a non-anxious presence. Is it not a healthy church? And Jonathan seems to embody that. Jonathan realizes that whether they are victorious or whether they fail, ultimately, it's not about him. It's not about his power. It's all dependent on God. And that understanding, in, in the way I see it, that understanding allowed Jonathan to be so alive and so free that he lived without restraint. That's, that's a little verse, or that's one of the words in the text there. Nothing can restrain God because he doesn't depend on whether it's few warriors or many. Kind of like saying, whether the odds are really in our favor or absolutely not in our favor, it's up to God. And that's what he sees. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. The way I see it, Jonathan is willing to see if God will really be God. How many of us live our life that way? Do we live in, in such a way, such an appropriate risk, calculated risk, adventurous risk, that if God doesn't show up, it won't work? Maybe God will act. Nothing restrains him. So, so what does that mean for us individually? I know for me, I've just spent probably the last month kind of just asking God. And God's kind of, I, I'm wondering, is this my own ambition or is this the Spirit of God that's speaking to me Like, have I taken enough risks, appropriate risks, to let God be God in my life? Where if if God doesn't act, it won't work. Because I can live a pretty safe, secure, even successful life in my own power. I had a pretty quality family growing up. I mean, they didn't mess me up too much. I got a pretty good education. I have some likable traits and some good abilities. Maybe not. (laughs) I I could be just fine. I'd be comfortable. I could exist. And maybe even exist above average. 
I want to live in such a way that people say, well, that God had to act. God had to work. I want to be in a church. I want restoration to be a place where, where it works because God acted, not because we organized well or we mustered up enough volunteers or we gave enough money where God has to act. So people can say, you should go to that place because God acts. And even if he doesn't, then it probably won't work. Now, I don't want to project what I think God has been kind of churning in my heart onto you. But I think, as I look at the text, I think it's an appropriate question. Are you living your life in such a way that people will know God acted? And I think if we do that, we will live with such an aliveness and such a freedom that not only will people see God, but we will feel, sense, and experience God in a way that that we might not have before. Yes, it's risky. And yes, it's a maybe. Because maybe he won't. But it's not out of this place of doubt for God. It's this place where we know God is the one who we depend on. And Jonathan is armor bearer. I mean, they do. They climb down the face. They run across. And the Philistines say exactly what Jonathan said was the key. Oh yeah, come up here. We'll see if you can take us on. All right. So they climb the whole thing. I, I get this picture of, um, oh gosh, the princess bride. You know, where he climbs the cliff and then he fights left-handed. And he says, I know something you do not know. I'm not left-handed. You know, it's this great scene. That's what I pictured. Like Jonathan comes up and he's He's done this cliff, and I doubt the Philistines are like, do you need a break? Because I'll let you, because I'm going to beat you anyway. You know, he's not Inigo Montoya. No, I think the Philistines were right there to pounce, but they're so surprised. They're so shocked. And they, the, the whole idea of uncircumcised men, they don't live in the covenant. This isn't about a piece of skin, not to be graphic. This is about the Philistines don't live in the covenant promises of God. And Jonathan is living in the covenant promises of God. And what I mean by that is he believes that God has unconditionally accepted him, called him, and loved him. That he can't do anything, whether he lives or he dies, to fall outside of that promise. To me, that's security. And the Philistines don't have that. That's the point of the, I think that's the point of the uncircumcised deal. And so they go up and they start fighting. And we find out there's at least 20 men because it says that Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20 men. And then the text says God sent an earthquake shaking the land and the army scatters. God did act. Two men down one face of a cliff up another face of a cliff, take out 20 men. You think that's all about Jonathan and the armor bearer? That's about God. God being God. It's about having a faith and a trust that if God doesn't act, it won't work. But I live in that dependence and that trust. So as you think, as we kind of figure out how to respond um, if, you're, if you're a person who gets overwhelmed, maybe the idea in the response is simply like asking yourself, do I need to stop complaining? Do I need to stop closing up? 
being frozen with fear, maybe let somebody in, actually pray and ask God to act. Or staying in the situation if I'm overwhelmed, asking God to see opportunities where he might be revealed. Maybe that's, if you're in a place of overwhelmed or overwhelmment, maybe that's the response for you. But maybe you're not right there. You're not in the overwhelmed part. Then then I guess what I would ask you is, where do you risk? There's a sheet of paper in your worship folder. It's just blank. You don't have to, but sometimes it helps to engage. So there's a sheet of paper in there, and it's blank. And it's intentionally blank because we're not trying to be the Holy Spirit in your life. But there might be a risk that you need to take, that God is inviting you to take, so that you know maybe God will act on your behalf. And you'll get the opportunity to see God be God. And if you know what that is, I encourage you to write it down. And as we move into a time of offering, we put the boxes up here. And maybe your risk is is literally giving a financial offering, not that it's about money to this place, but often we hold it. Maybe we've never actually sacrificially given to see, wow, I'll give that, but if God doesn't show up, I'm not going to have enough. I'm telling you to be unwise or foolish, but I am telling you to risk so God can act. So they're up front, but it's not just about an offering check. It's about that blank sheet of paper. It's about bringing that up and offering that to God, offering that risk up and saying, God, if you don't act in this, or I need to step into this to see you act because I want you to be God. Psalm 46 starts in this place that God is our refuge and our strength. He's very present help in times of trouble. He's abundantly available for help in tight places. And if you're in a tight place, know that it ends like this. It says, be still and know that I'm God. And what that means is, be still means cease striving. If your life just feels hard, it feels like you just have to work and work and fight and fight through, maybe it's because you're not asking God to act on your behalf. So it says, cease striving and know that I'm God. See striving and let God be God because he'll be exalted among the nations. It says he'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Think about that. God has a plan that he is going to be exalted in the nations. I don't know if it will be in my lifetime. I just know that's the end of the story and I believe it. And he invites us into that. He invites us into this place where we can help others to see that God will be exalted and he's the protector and he's with us. So if he's with you, then, then I go back to this youth ministry phrase, God plus one is always a majority. But it doesn't matter whether you have the odds in your favor because the text says nothing can restrain God. Where are you living in restraint? Where do you need God to act? Will you take the risk and let him act?
Another pastor said, the more that we pray, the less we'll panic. And the more we worship, the less we'll worry. So God, we don't want to be a panicked people. We don't want to be a worried people. God, I don't want to have a non-anxious presence and I don't think you call us to live in a place. I I mean, I want to have a non-anxious presence. I don't think you call us to live in a place of anxiety or worry or fear. I think you call us to live in a place of freedom and aliveness where you act, where you're God, where we see you as God. And I pray that we'd risk. Most of us will never risk our lives, literally, for your gospel, Lord, for your good news. God, but some of us live in chains because we restrain what you can do. God, our motive is not to bring ourselves glory. I don't think that was Jonathan's motive. I think perhaps God will act on our behalf was a statement of trust in you. God, could we live our lives stating that we trust you? So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us individually? Oh, we're in need to trust more. If we're here and we're not sure about just this whole idea of of God and how Jesus fits in. God, I pray that through these words and through the scripture that, that we would see that the way of Jesus is the, the way of aliveness. It is the way where, where we don't live this burdened life. And God, I pray for those that feel so overwhelmed, they're not even sure they can walk up and Put a piece of paper in a box. I pray that you would, your presence would be so close that they could feel you, that they would hear love, compassion, and encouragement. That you're a God who who says that you're not only a, a refuge and a strength, but you're like a mother hen who covers her chicks with her wing. God, if people just need a covering today, a refuge today, God, be that refuge. So speak to us, God. Amen.